Welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Kathleen Dillon. And I'm Melanie Gonzalez. Melanie and I are excited to bring you the story of a truly remarkable Stern graduate who built a successful career in banking before leaving it all behind to pursue mountaineering and other outdoor adventures. Vanessa O'Brien is a climber, explorer, and aquanaut. She holds a bachelor's degree in economics from NYU, as well as an MBA from NYU Stern. After graduating from Stern, she held director roles at Capital One, Morgan Stanley, Barclays, and Bank of America before leaving the banking industry to pursue outdoor exploration. Vanessa is the first woman to reach Earth's highest and lowest points, a Guinness World Record she received after summiting Mount Everest in 2012 and diving in a submersible to the eastern pool of Challenger Deep earlier this year in 2020. She also holds a Guinness World Record for being the fastest woman to climb the highest peak on every continent. In 2017, she reached the summit of K2, becoming the first American woman to do so. That's right. Our guest today, Vanessa O'Brien, is the first woman to have reached Earth's highest and lowest points. Vanessa's story is incredibly inspiring, and we're looking forward to learning more alongside our listeners. And so with that, let's dive into our conversation with Vanessa. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time today. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and, uh, and to talk with you. Great. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. And I think Melanie and I wanted to start off the conversation by hearing a little bit more about your childhood in Michigan, what you were like as a young girl. Sure. Uh, So I I would say uh, the first thing I think of when I'm asked that question is, um, and this is easy for me to think about because my husband and I are very different in this respect. I grew up with very young parents and he grew up with very, uh, with older parents and just he and I are different in that respect. Um, my parents were uh, like 18 and 20 when they had my brother and I, whereas his parents were over 40 when they had him and his sister. So how the parents reacted to having kids in those, during those ages were very different. As, as a product of very young parents, my parents were very um, energetic with my brother and I. So I always think in a in sort of a funny way about National Lampoon's vacation and the Griswolds. <laughs> you know, we were always being shoved in the back of a car and where are we going to go? You know, it's a weekend or it's the two-week vacation. You know, let's go visit this state, that state, the other state. What state haven't we been? Uh, and so, you know, it was always, you know, you know, uh, Put you know what rest area were we going to? I loved getting those um, games out of the rest areas. You know that they, that they have for kids kids that were a dime or a quarter, and um, you know what what motel would we end up with that had those neon signs? But, but the highlight was the pool that they had, and so it was always an adventure. And <clears throat> my dad was an outdoorsman, so he hunted and fished. So if you wanted to spend time with him you learned very early that you also had to hunt and fish (laughs) or you would never see your dad. But the only problem with that is the places he liked to go were really not child-friendly. So ice fishing is really cold and all the good fish were in the faraway places. So he'd take the airboat way, way out on the ice. 
you'd be freezing while he drilled the hole in the ice and put the ice shanty over it. And just when you thought you got to the fun bit and he put the heater inside the ice shanty, once the hole was drilled, he'd say, shh, don't make any noise. You're going to scare the fish. So you'd have to sit there in silence with your dad fishing, you know, and the same would be hunting, right? You'd go to these faraway places, trudging through the woods just to be quiet. <laughs> you know. So it was, it was always one of those kind of um, interesting, uh, you know, experiences. But li otherwise, life was suburban, right? Um, we didn't have, um, you know, uh, all the computers and video games, so we would play outside. So, by playing outside, you played games like hide-and-seek uh, or chase, or, or you played with nature, and so you learned uh, how to test limits, if you were bit or stung or caught poison ivy, or if you stayed out too long and there was a tornado, you learned to test limits that way. Um, so I think maybe all of that played a little bit into, um, I don't know if it was a love of exploration, but it was definitely a way of understanding nature and understanding its limits and understanding how I could, um, you know, um, relate to it and uh, survive a little bit in it. Um, otherwise, I was, you know, really just a regular kid in many ways. I played board games. I loved building puzzles. I loved records and music, stuffed animals, Barbies, the whole thing. Later in sports, I ran track and even later played basketball and softball, where I learned more about team sports. So, I'd say very, very, very much, you know, a normal kid from that perspective. Um, nothing really unusual stands out there. You know, do you, do you think that there is, you know, any other events in your life that might have allowed you to be more bold um, and daring in the decisions you took later on, you know, to do a climb like Mount Everest? Well, um, you know, it, it's funny because I think about would any of that have led to a love of adventure outdoors, right? say, the childhood experience. But my first, the first thing when I was old enough is I was more drawn to the cities because the cities were the exotic things, right? The city, a suburb is neither a city or a country. It's, it's a strange blend of uh, something else, right? But Detroit, which was our closest city, was kind of um, forbidden, to us as kids, because it wasn't really developed in the 70s and early 80s. It was plagued by debt and political corruption, despite having the automobile industry. So, if you were in a suburb like we were, you know, it was not a place that you visited. It wasn't like downtown, like most other cities have a nice downtown that you go to. Detroit was never that. Do you think that also led into your decision to apply and then ultimately enroll in NYU as an undergraduate, that kind of excitement about New York City that everything seems possible, there just seems the possibility to be exposed to so many new and different experiences? So it's, it's interesting that the, the decision for the MBA program in Stern was a, a little bit more... Um, was, was not a straight road. And one of my favorite authors <laughs> of The Alchemist um, uh, 
at least the, the quotes attributable to him, I've never been able to actually prove that, but was straight roads do not make skillful drivers. So I, I feel like my, my, educate, my higher education and my work uh, dovetailed in a way, that way. In other words, it wasn't all school, 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 school work. After high school, it was, it was a, a combination of work and school, work and school, and work and school. And the reason I, I, I like to articulate that is because for many young people, they don't know what they want to do in, with their life or their career or they have financial issues or things like that and they can't really figure out what they want to do. And it's a normal issue, a very, very normal issue. And it took me a long time to figure out what I was good at and to stop fighting what I was not good at, if that makes sense. And that's, that's natural, absolutely natural. Uh, so the straight road wasn't a straight road and that's why I like the quote straight roads do not make skillful drivers it's okay if yours isn't a straight road I started with a liberal arts degree so before I did anything I at least had a two-year degree but then I immediately went to work and I I had a job as an assistant accountant in an advertising agency and in 1985 $16,000 was $40,000 in today's money so I had credit cards, I had an apartment, you know, I, this was awesome. You know, if you're like, you know, 20 years old and you have, you know, all of these things, you know, you're, this is awesome. But I thought advertising was fun, but it's a business. And so I watched two ad advertising agencies go under losing pitches for clients. And I realized like, wow, this is a tough business. This isn't all just fun doesn't matter who you're pitching. So I realized like I had to get back to school and get, you know, a degree that, you know, there's, unless I want to be an assistant accountant the rest of my life, which I don't, I need a, I need a four-year degree. So I, I went back, I took all of, I took all the credits from that two-year liberal arts degree, put them into um, NYU Stern School of Continuing Education to get my BA in economics. And I'm also at this time working for a mortgage broker in a small office, making $40,000, which is in today's money, $85,000. So imagine that. But that's where I start to get into trouble because I'm so highly paid. That's how much I'm going to be offered after I get my BA, right? So I'm already making as much money as I'm going to get when I get my BA, so when I meet GE and they offer me the financial management program, FMP, which is highly prestigious, and, and they're, so they're attracted to me because I've turned around the small office. I've introduced the first computer. I've automated all the sales leads. I, I pretty much put myself out of a job, right? Everything's now like, you know all the leads are automated, you know, all the letters, you know, are, are put together with the packages, packages are automated, you know, I just, I just, you know, this, this is like now state of the art, and I just did this, you know, almost on the side, right, you know, bored. But they're thinking, oh my God, self-starter, she's awesome, we need this kind of like person, but they offer me less money. So I'm like, oh, what do I do? Do I get in this awesome training program FMP, which is like their internal um, MBA with Jack Welsh, you know, best business leader, 
you know, of the century in terms of, you know, stock, uh, stock market valuation, growth, all of this stuff, unless you look at the, you know, the, um, the other guys like um, Steve Jobs and, and people like that who are very different as entrepreneurs. Or do I, you know, what do I do? But anyway, I, I, I take the pay cut. Anyway, um, so three years into GE, I've graduated FMP. I've won their esteemed pinnacle award, you know, 0.1% of people ever do that, you know, for high achievements, all of that. Soaked up all the training, the soft skills, the high, hard skills, all the stuff I could get, right? I've just absorbed. But I wanted more, right? More knowledge, anything I could enhance my skill, anything I could get. Um, and that's what led me to look for the MBA, right, at Stern. What Stern gave me was additional knowledge, a set of tools, and a qualification that opened doors. Uh, we were put in teams from the beginning. So I went through the executive MBA program, and we were put in teams from the beginning. Uh, my team was five, and we were mixed, boys, girls, and we had an international student. And it was amazing how we differed. I remember desperately trying to teach a trader who ran a desk, double entry accounting, and he couldn't get it. He couldn't get it because he ran a book. He ate what he killed. Why were we doing something twice? It made no sense. And when you say it that way, it sounds funny, like you're in a Seinfeld or a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. And I get it when he says it that way too, right? Because he's not running a company when he's running a book. He's just recording what, he, what he's doing. You know, so... From his perspective, an asset and revenue are the same. He doesn't care if it, you know, he's only looking at a single year period. So it's, it's just very, it's very, very interesting, you know, when you get people together and you see how their brains function. And however, that same person would run rings around other people on a Black Scholes model or pricing options and futures and, and strategies for, you know, for, for uh, financial products in the market. So one didn't bite their tongue for very long before somebody would get their own back. So the point is, is all five of us were good and bad at different subjects, which showed you the value of a mixed team, right? So graduating from Stern uh, doubled my salary, of course, but, it, but and that was a, a bonus, but it tripled my work responsibility. And that was what I was really after because my appetite for responsibility was, was growing. <clears throat> and my big test came um, packaging an asset management business for sale for a private bank. Now, did I know with 100% certainty what I was doing? Absolutely not. But I had put together thousands of presentations and I had loads of samples that I could go off of. So I knew roughly what the buyers wanted. What was tricky was finding the data, the right people who might have the data, getting the information quickly, not letting on what I, why I wanted what I wanted. You know, so the internal people didn't know I, I was sell, you know, we, we were selling something. That was more interesting and challenging. So, you know, you're always going to learn more on the job, no matter what 
what you come across. The big thing is just coming across something the first time and saying, hey, that's fine. I've never done this before, but what is it? Let's go. You know, uh, problem action results. You know, what is it? Uh, we used to have used DMAIC, like, you know, define, define, measure, analyze, improve, control. You know, something like that. You just come up with something that lets you process and organize your thoughts and see what the problem is and solve it. You know, just don't ever start from a point of, oh, no, like, I can't do this. If you start with that, you will, you've already undermined your own efforts. Start with a position of power, which says, I've got this. You know, crumble slowly later, but you got to start strong, you know, and say, no problem. What are we looking at? And then, you know, as you break down stuff, you know, if you get into a, you know, a rough spot somewhere, then you can say, okay, hey, I need help for this, help with this or something. And, and don't be afraid to ask for help. That's the other thing is, you know, it's a natural thing in, in organizations. You're constantly sourcing things from other people. And that's the whole part of a, a large organization and teamwork too. So Vanessa, switching gears a little bit, um, what made you eventually kind of switch your career, leaving corporate America and starting all the adventures you started to take on? So, um, so some, some did view, I know uh, one of the questions was, was your decision to leave banking, you know, a risk? And, and some would maybe view that as a risk. And I, I do like that as a question because, you know, look, risk is, I love the word risk. Risk is, is what we do. Uh, risk is an important part of life and uh, it's an important part of business. And and everybody has a uh, every business has a personal risk or every business has a risk appetite and every individual has a personal risk um, a personal risk appetite. So as this you know recession hits, I'm sitting in at the time London, and people said, "Oh, you know, is it a risk to leave?" Well, yes and no. Um, I was sitting. Uh, at the time working in a business in consumer credit that had the recession not hit was poised to really take off on a growth trajectory. And so I was paid a six-figure salary with a really big upside for risk, meaning, you know, pounds per receivables, you know, pound, uh, pounds per new account, that kind of thing. So as I bought portfolios, my upside was exponential based on how big those portfolios were. So I was getting paid on the number of new accounts the, or existing accounts, the number of uh, the value, you know, if it was, um, you know, uh, 500 million, you know, pounds of, of receivables that we brought onto the books, that kind of thing. So I would get a percentage of that. So that was what was in it for me, not not that base. So when 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 the recession hit and nobody wanted to trade any third party risk, <laughs> it was like this this isn't any fun. I'm just going to sit here, and th and I don't do that. I don't I don't do well sitting there. 
because I, I'm honest. And so I just said, you know, look, this, you don't need me. And that was, you know, 300,000% true. So I fired myself, which is a very nice thing to do. So I sit down and I start thinking about what am I going to do? And so I start writing out like a list. Um, and my list is, I need to have a goal. I need to measure success. I need to t take two to three years because that's how long I thought the recession would take. It has to not be in finance because of the current recession. And it has to be audacious, like something I can really sink my teeth into. And then I start trying to match stuff against that list. And that's where it gets interesting because I start thinking like more, first I think altruistically, like, okay, what do I care about? Like, well, you know, uh, if it's a world problem, something like malaria, that's really annoying. Why do we need mosquitoes? I know it might be part of the food chain, something like that, but look, you know, all the diseases, and at that point, they were all over Hong Kong. You would see like dengue fever, dengue fever, all that stuff. What if we eradicate malaria? But somewhere along the time, treasure and talent thing, it would fail. It, it seemed bigger. It'll take longer than two to three years. It would fail against one of those parameters. And so it was like, uh, it's, it's, that's not right. It's too big. It's over my head. It's something for Bill Gates, not me, right? Um, but then I thought, hey, what do I like to do? Well, I love products like skincare and stuff like that. And now I'm in Asia and there's like all these exotic fruits filled with like antioxidants. What if I develop something like, you know, a product range? Um, and then, you know, I, I, I just look at it and then it was like, oh, you know, distribution, how do I... How do I keep the shelf life? And, you know, I, I, I go down this rabbit hole and, you know, start to think about, you know, I don't really know anything about how to do that. And it's, um, I could learn for sure, but it seemed like that might be, that might take longer than two to three years. And I, and, you know, do I have the right people and partners and how do I find, you know, it, it just seemed, it seemed complicated. Um, but still interesting. And then I just randomly uh, was look, putting together this list and somebody said to me, um, why not climb Everest? And it really was random and it was like a penny dropped and bounced, like ricocheted off the ground. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It was like Everest, 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 Everest. And it was like, whoa. Where, where is it? How high is it? Uh, you know, I was roughly aware that, you know, Hillary and Tenzing had done it. Uh, it had happened then and it was happening now. But, you know, I, I promise you, I, I couldn't tell you much more than that. Um, you know, and of course, you know, my British, you know, husband, uh, they say public school, which is private, starts rambling off the, all the details. And I'm like, oh, you know, why did I ask? But, you know, it's fine. So, it, it, you know, it, it was just, as I put them against all those things, it was like, wow, okay, can I measure success? Yes. As it turns out, it's not the summit. It's getting back down. But that's okay. Is it a goal? Yes. Take two to three years? Yes. It's not finance. And it's really bloody audacious. Like, it just fit all of those things, right? And I thought... 
wow, okay, you know, like, I've never climbed, but in my mind, and I think this is what really set me apart from other people I know who climb, is that the first thing I thought of is, um, you know, um, not so much that I I had never climbed, but would I be any good at it? And, um, you know, would I... I guess um, that it was a skill that could be taught and therefore learned, and would I be any good at it? Those were the first thoughts that came to my head. I saw it as a skill, and a skill can be taught and therefore learned. And I think most people think of it as something that just is, uh, like you're you're like predisposed to or born with, or you know something like uh, you know like. I, but I never saw it that way. I was like, okay, I have to go. I live in Hong Kong. I'm going to have to go to. Uh, New Zealand is the closest mountain, and and learn, and that's exactly what I did. And I think my husband thought like, okay, she's just like gonna do this and and hate it, and you know it'll be a one off. And um, and uh, it wasn't because I I went and I was like, wow, this is really interesting, you know, totally different. It had all this kit. It had, all, you know, really, it was challenging, right? You know, um, but it was it was different than I thought. Um, even what I learned there was different than I thought, and I would learn along the way as well. So, you know, I guess as a left brain person, I like facts and logic. So, was leaving banking risky? Risky? Do I have advice for others? You know. I would say, I don't think it was risky because there's the financial side. There was, you know, I made up the finance stuff. That wasn't the risk. The risk was, if you're, if you're a type A person, you're going to have to do something. And, you know, what you do is, is something that you're going to have to, you know, eventually find out you're going to have to find a purpose you're going to have to find you know a series of goals you know that will always be changing but what i'd like people to know is whenever there's a decision that everyone every single one of us has a safety net and the safety net is all the skills knowledge and experience you acquired throughout your life so whenever you face a binary decision and binary is important here a decision to do something or not to do something. The first thing you need to know is not choosing is also a choice. (laughs) So don't lie to yourself. But you have to remember the safety net because the decision that you keep coming back to, you you need to address. No one can take away the knowledge, skills, or experience you have acquired. I like to say that you banked those and those are yours to keep. So you can make a move, you can pivot. Others may deem it risky, but here's what you here's what happens when you make a move. You have a data point. If you make a move and you like it, bingo, you're done. You make a move and you don't like it, you can always go back. But you will never know if you don't make a move. So whether it's changing jobs, moving cities, leaving an, a, 
a relationship you're stuck in, whatever it is, if you don't take a step, you just don't know. And I find so many people get stuck and they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. And it's like, you got to pivot. Because they just don't know that they have their own safety net. That set of skills, knowledge, and experience, they can always go exactly back to where they were. People don't, you can, nobody can rob you of that. Nobody can stand up and say, you know, hey, give me your skills, knowledge, and experience. Vanessa, I really appreciate your willingness to bring failure and accept failure in your life. I think as MBA students, sometimes we feel like we have to be perfect or project this image of perfection. But I think what you've shown is that when you're willing to welcome failure into your life, you ultimately can reach much greater heights. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Failure is, every entrepreneur will tell you that failure is an important part of success. In fact, you know, I think there's a great quote from Gates that says, you know, without failure, there is no success. You want to have, in fact, the earlier you can fail, the easier your success will come. And one shouldn't be afraid of, of making mistakes because those mistakes become the data points which inform really important decisions later on. Um, it wasn't just K2. There, there were other mistakes that I made based on very good data. Um, you know, logic, actually. But, you know, it's, 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 how you, it's how you become more informed and better at what you're doing. Um, it, it's really important, you know, and I can't stress that enough. Um, and, and actually, I learned it at GE, too. GE really embraced failure, you know, as, as a learning tool. Where failure is not good as a learning tool is if you don't learn from the mistake. If you, say, if you make the same mistake twice, three times, four times, obviously, you are refusing to accept that answer, so why, why are you having that repetitive problem, you know, in that, in that area of failure? Um, you know, that's something you have to unpack and deconstruct. But if you make a mistake and you say, okay, hang on, there's something more here, you know. And, and so with K2, K2 was... Um, Every year, or let's say the first year, I got to Camp 2. It was an El Nino year, and there was a lot of rockfall. So, being the first year, I had a lot of information and data. So, going, and, and everybody will give you a first pass, you know, ah, oh, you know, bad luck, you got to give it another go. But the second year, we got to Camp 3 before an avalanche took out everything that was stashed at you know, one camp higher. So here I am having had two seasons plus another camp. Now there's only four camps to the summit. So each year I was getting a little bit higher and getting more and more data and more recording more and more actual weather as well. So, you know, there was progress and that's, you know, that's getting you closer to your goal, if you will. But every single year, if you look statistically, there's a 40% chance of no summit, statistically, since, since 1986 anyway. And that's, 
you know, it's also random. It's a random walk. So you are rolling the dice. You know, it's not like I can take those two, you know, summits and say, okay, well, you know, the third one's guaranteed to be success. It doesn't work that way because <laughs> it's mother nature. But, but even on, uh, you know, after learning how to climb, I thought, where should I take my new uh, climbing skills if my goal is Everest? And I said, well, you know, I should, I should go to Everest. Not the summit, you know, don't be daft. I'm not that uh, experienced. But the way they sold Everest was base camp, camp two, and the summit. Now, base camp is just a trek in hiking boots. And I had climbed Kilimanjaro. It was just a fun thing, you know, a long time ago. And I had been higher than base camp. So I decided to choose camp two. So logically, that's only whatever it is, you know, 1,500 feet or something higher than I had been before. So logically, it makes sense. But what I missed, I missed the Kumbu Icefall, which is the most technical part of the climbing, which comes right out of base camp. And that was my mistake. My mistake was focusing on more of the acclimatization and the altitude and not looking at the exact bit of climbing that I was going to have to do, even if it was just 1,500 feet. So, and that's, that would be my downfall on that first climb because I would get in an icefall avalanche and not know exactly what to do. Not that there are a lot of things you can do, but it was no place for me to be. And, um, and having that experience and having pulmonary edema, you know, and having to eat a big piece of humble pie, which is awful, awful, awful. You know, I walked those, you know, 60 miles out in one shot and replayed the whole scene over and over in my head and everything that I had done wrong. And I made the promise to go back. So when I did go back, I went back having summited two other 8,000-meter peaks or peaks over 26,000 feet before climbing Everest. So I was the strongest person on my team. Um, you know, I went back with certainty, knowing, you know, that I, I had that. And I was not going to make that same mistake. I knew exactly what I had done wrong and that and things you know what was my responsibility you know the mountain would teach me lots of things number one that I was not in control and it's a hard thing for a business person who's taught to always be in control the mountain would teach me that I was not in control and that I could and really to shift my focus to the things I could control and that was a humbling experience because she, Gaia, Mother Earth, is the leader. And I would be her, you know, her mere, you know, disciple asking her permission and forgiveness for any damage I do to climb her. And when you put yourself in that, um, in that position where suddenly you're not the boss, you may be leading an expedition, but you know there's, there's somebody out, out there, you know, in a uh, spiritual sense that's more important to you than you. You know, you are very humbled. 
and it and in a business world you you're taught to always be in control and no matter what you you know you call the shots and mother nature can throw that you know uh hurricane at you she can throw that uh, avalanche at you she can you know create uh, an earthquake she can do all sorts of things and you know you are the recipient not um all you can do is is react You've had a really impressive career in finance and all of your climbs um, have just been absolutely incredible. Is there anything next for you? Um, any other goals? What's kind of on your bucket list and what are you working on now? So, you know, it's interesting. The 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 dive to Challenger Deep, um, I, I had talked about, um, although this, this just happened in, in June this year, 2020, the first thing to think of is most of these things that are exploratory are hard for someone like me because all of these things were, were done before I was born. So if you, if you put things in context, all of the mountains were climbed before I was born. All the large peaks, you know, Everest, there's 14 peaks over 26,000 feet in the Himalayas and the Karakoram. They've all been climbed. They were climbed before I was born. So I can never be first. I, I, I became the first American and British woman as dual national to climb K2, but that's not a Guinness World Record. And even when I had the Guinness World Record for being the fastest to climb the seven summits in 295 days, somebody can beat me by five days and take that away from me. Right? So when I looked at what could I do to be first? There's very few things. I looked at the bottom of the ocean because um, w- one of one of the uh, one of the guys that I was uh, uh, in one of the clubs uh, here in New York, uh, Don Walsh, had done this in 1960 as part of the U.S. Navy. And the um, Challenger Deep at the bottom of the Mariana Trench is actually uh, deeper than Everest is tall. But he did it in a ship that got, that managed to get down, you know, practically, you know, God knows how they got it up, broken windows, everything else, got down, you know, all the sludge came up. It was a huge, enormous, you know, instrument of sub, you know, they get it back up and, you know, but that's, that's before I was born, you know, and 52 years later, James Cameron, the Hollywood producer-director, duplicates the dive. But both hit in 1960 and Cameron's dive go one, in 2012, I believe it was, go one time, one way. In other words, there's never been a vehicle that can go down twice. So I kept thinking about being the first woman to do it. But even as I said it, there was no vehicle that existed to do it, right? But it's kind of like I put it out there saying, okay, I'd like to do it because it involves risk. In 2019, a guy built a sub and he did it. And I knew him. And I was like, wow, okay, what are the chances? This guy had done the seven summits just like me. And I sat next to him at a dinner party. We both got our Summit Summits Awards. I mean, what are the chances? 
So, you know, I reached out to him and, you know, there's sometimes there's a little fate in these things, you know, and timing. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, whole things came, a whole lot of things came together to make this happen. You know, I'd put it out there before the machine existed, before um, Victor had even done his dive, before he created the sub. You know, in other words, like, I put an intention out, in a way, to the universe, if that made sense. And then I never knew whether it would exist or, or happen or anything like that. When you say what's next is kind of funny, you know, I had put that out there so long ago, but I never knew when it would come up, you know? Um, there are other things that I find interesting, uh, even on shipwrecks. So I became close to the Shackleton family uh, with the legacy of Sir Ernest Shackleton. And uh, endurance has never been found. This is a ship that's um, off the coast of Antarctica in the Weddell Sea. And Shackleton's story to me is so interesting because this is a man who attempts to make a trip across Antarctica and to be the first, but gets caught in the ice, ends up turning this mission into like a, a survival and saving mission for his men. And there's so many great books and um, that there's, there's a great video, I think they call it um, Shackleton Death and Glory, Discovery did one. Um, but you see this this unbelievable recreation of Shackleton's story being told, you know, where he has to take this tiny little boat or four boats over uh, and they get caught on Elephant Island. And then it's, it's, a, it's a desolate island, so they know they're going to starve. You know, the season will eventually pass and they'll run out of seal meat and, and um, uh, penguins. So they take one rowboat and Shackleton starts to see the troublemakers in the group. So he takes not the best sailors to go to South Georgia to find help with the whaling station. He takes the troublemakers who are going to have the men lose morale. The big, loud troublemaker, you know, the, whoever the one and two of those were. Not the best sailors to help him get across, but the people who are going to do the worst for the men left behind. Who does that? Who thinks like that? It's so awesome. And in a new book coming out that talks about like leadership under COVID, they point to Shackleton as exactly the kind of leadership in the COVID times, not the growth times, but the times when people are pulling back business continuity times, when you focus on people management and taking care of people as the kind of leader like Shackleton, 100% focused on the people and, the, and saving his men. It's just an awesome, awesome story. But anyway, I think about the ship because I wanted to, get, I wanted to find the ship and bring up the bell. Um, you know, Titanic's been found and all of that, but I would like to, I'd like to bring up the bell um, because I think it would bring a whole new, I, it would bring that story to a whole new generation. And uh, the granddaughter who's still alive has agreed that the bell would go to a museum and it's the 100th anniversary of his death in 2022, which means we'd have to do it in winter 2021, which frankly is next year. <laughs> so, but it's not cheap. It'd be about $10 million to, to do that. 
So everything I do starts getting, uh, you know, more and more expensive, if you know what I mean. So it's, you know, I think it might be better just to stick to maybe trying to get a ticket on Virgin Galactic and, and doing the trifecta, which would be, you know, uh, say the mountains, the ocean and space and doing an explorer's trifecta and having a, a really cool, you know, sort of sponsor and, and do something for science that would be, you know, maybe physiological and you also have a book coming out next year, is that right? Yeah, the book was uh, supposed to come out this year, but it was delayed uh, because of the coronavirus and, of course, the election. Um, people really uh, don't like to launch books, um, really, on a global pandemic, who knew, and um, an election. So the book is To the Greatest Heights. Uh, it's Simon & Schuster is the publisher, and it's on Amazon. It's, it's on a couple of different places, so you can Google that. And I put up a website, to thegreatestheights.com. So um, it's, it's there, and uh, I think it's funny. I wrote it actually to be um, with a great sense of humor, but also, you know, a couple learning experiences through there, and uh, telling stories, and also um, examples of, of the the types of people that you meet, um, the motivations, um, examples of experiences, you know, what you can take away from those, and some things that you just can't make up. And so I thought it was interesting to share those because I, I tell stories and people would say, no, that didn't happen. It's like, oh, it definitely happened. But you know, you, you'd see something like that on a film in Hollywood and, and you'd swear somebody made it up. And that's why I thought it was funny because sometimes the triangulation you know where you know fiction and nonfiction hit it's like you, you just you can't believe some of this stuff well we're excited to read it um thank you so much for being with us here today vanessa we're so grateful for your time and your willingness to share your story with us no thank Thanks. you both very much great it was great to speak with you both thank you thank you vanessa all right bye-bye